Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Psalm 78, 1 through 8. Listen, O my people, to my instruction. Incline your ears to the words of my mouth. I will open my mouth in a parable. I will utter dark sayings of old, which we have heard and known, and our fathers have told us. We will not conceal them from their children, but tell to the generation to come the praises of the Lord and His strength and His wondrous works that He has done. For He established a testimony in Jacob and appointed a law in Israel, which He commanded our fathers that they should teach them to their children, that the generation to come might know, even the children yet to be born, that they may arise and tell them to their children that they should put their confidence in God and not forget the works of God, but keep His commandments, and not be like their fathers, a stubborn and rebellious generation, a generation that did not prepare its heart and whose spirit was not faithful to God. If we had no other verse, which we have many, if we have no other verse to uh, support what we're doing on Sunday evenings of going through church history, we got it right here in Psalm 78. We're commanded to do it here. In Psalm 78, we are taught to pass on down through our children the generations to come, the praises of the Lord, the mighty works of God in behalf of His people, so that our children and our grandchildren will be as excited about the, the works of God as we are, so that they, and even more so, so that they might put their faith in God and not in men, and that they may tell their children the wonderful works of God, that our generations may not forget the works of God, keep His commandments for thousands of generations. And so what we do on these evenings is we teach about the mighty works of God in the 16th and 17th century. That we might know something about our roots. That we might appreciate what God has done for us, not only in the Old Testament, in the New Testament, throughout history, but most particularly during the time of the Protestant Reformation. And now our responsibility is to teach our children these things so that they don't grow up as culturally illiterate as the rest of American children in this country. Uh, So that they'll love the God that you love, and they'll put their confidence in the God that you worship, and they'll keep the commandments of God better than you and I have done. Now, there is an interesting pronoun in this uh, passage of Scripture. I'm going to misread a couple verses and see if you can pick it out. Let's start with verse 3. Which we have heard and known, and our fathers have told us, We will not conceal them from our children, but tell to the generation to come the praises of the Lord. Did anybody catch how I misread that verse? I said in verse 4, we will not conceal them from our children, but tell to the generation to come the praises of the Lord. It doesn't say our, does it? But it's talking about our children. 
But it says, we will not conceal them, that is, the great works of God, from their children. Whose children? From our father's children, who've gone on before us, who are our children. To tell them and the generations to come the praise of the Lord. Our children are their children. Our children are the children of our fathers. And so you have the responsibility and I to teach our children the great history of the mighty works of God in behalf of His church because our children are their children. If you need another verse, you don't need another verse, in fact, to point out the continuity of God's covenant in the Old Testament. Your children are their children. Your children are Moses' children. Your children are Abraham's children. Your children are Isaiah's children. Your children are Augustine's children. Your children are Martin Luther's children. Your children are John Calvin's children. Your children are their children, the children of the fathers. And therefore, you're to educate them and train them to love this heritage of our fathers and our forefathers and on beyond. All right, with that as an introduction now, let's move back to the reign of Charles I of England, who was the king of England from 1625 until 1649. And he was a tyrant over the church and the state. Now, let's just very quickly uh, review some things. First of all, we ended last week by emphasizing the worst mistake Charles I ever made when he tried to impose his tyranny on the Presbyterians in Scotland. That was the beginning of his end and of the end in tyranny, end of tyranny in the 17th century. When he tried to bring the Presbyterians in Scotland under the yoke of the Church of England, the Anglo-Catholicism of the Church of England, and these Scottish Presbyterians would rather fight than switch. Because they not only love freedom, they love the Word of God, they love the Reformed faith, they love their Presbyterian churches, which they found in the Scriptures, and they were ready to shed their blood, rather than give in complacently to the tyranny of Charles I. And so the entire nation of Scotland signed the National Covenant. Men from the highest echelons of power and of wealth to the lowest common average man, the Scottish people as a nation, united, and many of them signed their names to this document in blood. They cut their veins and stick the quill in the veins and write their names in blood to this document saying that we will lay down our lives and fight the rest of our lives in defense of the Reformed faith as over against all Anglo-Catholic Episcopal um, innovations in Scotland. Because we, they said, understand that you cannot have civil liberty unless your culture and your society is based without compromise comprehensively and exclusively upon the Word of God. And you cannot have freedom in a culture unless you recognize that God alone is sovereign in the affairs of men and no human institution is sovereign. And so they signed this document. When the Scottish people signed this document, they did some other things too. The General Assembly of the, Pre of the Church of Scotland, which was Presbyterian, proceeded to abolish all bishops. You remember James I, who's Charles I's father, had tried to oppress uh, the Scottish church and force it into an Anglican mold, and so he imposed bishops in the Church of Scotland. Well, now the Church of Scotland and its General Assembly voted to, to abolish all bishops, 
It then proceeded to annul every law, every church decree, every form, every ordinance that had been imposed upon it by the Armenian Episcopal Church of England. Moreover, it reestablished that the Church of Scotland would be the Presbyterian Church and the Reformed faith would be the doctrine of that church and the confession of faith of the Scottish people. And then it did something for the first time in human history. Something that has had little attention paid to it. But one of the most important acts of the 17th century. The Scottish General Assembly, in response to Charles I's tyranny, declared the Church of Scotland independent of the state. Now remember how dramatic that is. Because who was the head of the church in Great Britain since Henry VIII? The monarch of England, the king or the queen. And that the church was seen as an arm of the state, as under the state's authority. And even uh, many of the bishops, the archbishops, many of the Puritans themselves, and the, even the Presbyterians by name in the English Parliament were Erastian. You remember? They were people who believed that the, that the church ought not to be under the king, but the church ought to be under the Parliament that it still ought to be under the state. And the Scottish Presbyterians as over against the English Puritans at this point in time. For the first time in history, said, publicly declared, the church is not under the state. You have two separate institutions with two separate jurisdictions, two separate functions. The church is not under the state. And the people who have been the most outspoken and the most consistent in defense of that ever since have been those who were genuinely Presbyterian, genuinely Reformed in their outlook and viewpoint on life. Let me tell you one other thing that was happening during this present time uh, to show you things haven't changed much. During this same period from Elizabeth I through James I on up to Charles I, that is from the late 1500s on up to the middle 1600s, the theater and the stage had grown worse from broad to body to filthy. And with rare exceptions, the purpose of theater and stage during that whole Elizabethan area and beyond was to mock the Puritans and the Reformed people of that century. Things haven't changed much, have they? If you want to read or see, as Becky and I have done, a play written against the vices and the moral decline of that day, look for actually two plays written in 1633. These were the rare exceptions. These were the, the uh, I mean, you know, they, they made a fortune at the movie theaters. People went to see these two plays. They were the exceptions. They didn't magnify guilt, uh, filth and bawdiness. They attacked it and criticized it. And these plays were both written by John Ford in 1633, one of them which we've seen called The Broken Heart and the other called Tis a Pity, She's a Whore. Both of these plays are great assaults upon the immorality and the filth and the wickedness of those generations. But well, now remember what Charles I's response was, was the National Covenant. He 
he said, we need to bring these boys into line. So he raises an army and threatens to go after the Scots to bring down the resistance. But when he faces off with the Scots, great coward that he was, he retreats. And the Scottish army marches into England and sets up camp in England. Now remember that because that's going to be a great encouragement to the Westminster Fathers a little later on in history. Here you have a Scottish Presbyterian army by the thousands encamped in, in England. And they are so powerful that they demand, and he succumbs, that Charles I pay their board and room while they're there encamped in England. Now can you imagine paying for weeks and weeks on end for the board and room of an army of thousands of people? Well, do you remember how we talked about how King Charles tried to tighten the noose on the Parliament with his etc. oath? Remember trying to get all of the Puritans to promise that they would never uh, attack the Episcopal government with all of its bishops and archbishops and deacons and archdeacons, etc. And the etc., who knows what that meant. I mean, that could cover everything. And so the Puritans were not about to sign an oath swearing to something they had no idea what it would involve. And so as a result, they were persecuted again. And so Parliament, which by this time was predominantly Presbyterian in uh, tendency and in outlook, though they didn't understand, as we saw last week, all the implications, Parliament came to the rescue and tightened the noose on the king's neck and the bishops by passing the root and branch petition. And the Parliament of England abolished, outlawed the Episcopal system in the Church of England, outlawed all bishops and archbishops, etc., the whole Episcopal government of the Church of England, among other things. Then you remember the House of Commons said that it was going to stand by the Reformed faith. The House of Lords said it was going to stand by the Reformed faith. Then there was a growing awareness all over the land for godly advice to Parliament. The Church of England has no government now. I mean... Doesn't have any government. All the bishops and archbishops have been abolished. There's no government to the church. Can you imagine? And so now there has to be the Christian reconstruction of the church as well as the state, and it's predominantly in Parliament's hands. Everybody recognized if Parliament's going to accomplish this, it needs the godly advice of the Reformed ministers and the Reformed scholars and the Reformed theologians to assist Parliament and make sure that it uses the Bible correctly in the reconstruction of the church, government, and of the state uh, of the whole nation of England. So there began to be calls from all hands for an assembly of preachers and scholars to assist the Parliament. A group of men who were capable, above average, in the knowledge of the Word of God, who could gather together and be constantly available to advise the Parliament in all of its questions and in all of the directions that it took. And along with this growing call for an assembly, there was also a growing awareness that if we're going to have an assembly, it must not simply be to establish internal peace in the Church of England, but we've got to have a broader prospect that we've got to establish a, a committee, an assembly that would work with Parliament and bring harmony and unity with all the other Reformed churches of the world, most particularly with the great neighboring Presbyterian Church of Scotland. So it was with this broad, genuinely biblical ecumenical vision of bringing the whole Reformed world together in some semblance of unity that the House of Commons drew up what it called the Grand Remonstrance. 
on November the 8th, 1641. November the 8th, 1641. Let me tell you what this grand remonstrance did. First of all, in it, Parliament vowed to reduce the boundaries of the monarch's power over the English people and over the power of the bishops over the English people. And the Parliament publicly and in written form dedicated itself to find a juster discipline and government of the church. And here's what the Grand Remonstrance, Remonstrance says. And the better to effect the intended reformation, we desire there be a general synod of the most grave, pious, learned, and judicious divines of this island, assisted with some from foreign parts, professing the same religion with us, who may consider of all things necessary for the peace and good government of the church and represents the results of their consultations under the parliament to be there allowed of and confirmed and receive the stamp of authority thereby to find passage and obedience throughout the kingdom. So what this grand remonstrance were, was was the legal decision and call for the, what became the Westminster Assembly that created the Westminster Confession of Faith. Parliament said we're going to call in order to advance the Protestant Reformation of church and state in England. Can you imagine if the Congress had understanding like this? That here's a whole parliament now. I mean, can you imagine if the English parliament, have you ever watched English parliament on television? I mean, it is a circus. Can you imagine? I mean, our Congress is so boring compared to the, uh, to the English parliament. But can you imagine when you have a whole parliament say, that we do hereby recognize our need for a general assembly of the most grave, the most pious, the most learned, and the most judicious reform scholars of this island to create a, doc a document that would, that would put an end to the social, economic, and political chaos of Great Britain. Now, when do conservatives start selling out, even Christian conservatives who are running for public office in the United States? They begin to sell out when they say, I'm, I'm pro-life, I'm for getting the Ten Commandments back somewhere or another, and I'm for praying somewhere or another. But the first thing on the agenda is the balancing of the budget and getting the economic affairs of the United States in order. When they say that, beloved, they've already sold out. Not so the Presbyterians in Parliament. They said, we've got economic crisis here. We've got political tyranny in crisis. And on the verge of anarchy, we've got armies in England of Parliament and, and the King against each other. We've got social turmoil and lawlessness. Where do we start in this agenda? Now, these are politicians talking now. This is Parliament. Where do we start in our agenda to change things? We start with the spiritual and the theological and the doctrine and the moral. That's where we start. Because all of these other economic, social, and political issues are simply symptoms of the basic problem of the nation. And that is the spiritual, theological chaos and turmoil. And without a, a, a unity in the truth, there cannot be unity in anything else. I mean, these, these parliamentarians may not have been perfect, but as we've said before, the long, there's been books written on biographies of the members of the long parliament 
because the Long Parliament was one of the greatest, uh, in my opinion, the greatest collection of Christian politicians met officially as the, as the representatives of the people in history. Not perfect men, but godly men. And overwhelmingly Presbyterian, overwhelmingly Reformed in their outlook. And they understand that unless we start from the ground up, from the spiritual and the theological and the doctrinal and the ethical will not have any type of solution for these economic and social and political problems. So in 1643, so Parliament passed uh, that law recognizing and declaring its desire to have a General Assembly of Christian and Reformed scholars to guide them in their decision. And so... In 1643, Parliament's desire was put into effect legally without the king's assent. Now, here Parliament has passed a law and is heading on a course. It tried to get the king of England to sign and approve. He wouldn't. So now it's like Congress giving the President of the United States a bill that the Congress has passed. And the, and the, and the uh, President of the United States vetoes it, and Congress says, forget your veto. We're going on full steam ahead. Can you imagine what would happen? Well, that's what's happening now in the 17th century in the days of Charles I. Parliament says we don't have the king's approval, but we're going on full steam ahead because in their minds they could say we have the Lord's approval. And so, by the way, because the king didn't give his approval, some of the greatest reformed, a few, just a few, of the greatest reformed scholars in Great Britain refused to participate in the Westminster Assembly. They thought it was too radical, they thought it was precipitous, and they wouldn't do it. And in my opinion, one of the greatest men in history, Archbishop Usher from Ireland, uh, whose catechism and confession were the models, models for the Shorter Catechism and the Westminster Confession of Faith, who was probably one of the two or three men of greatest spiritual stature in the world, wouldn't go to the Westminster Assembly because he felt it was illegal and he was, uh, though he was against what the king was doing, he was for the crown. But the Westminster Assembly men were so humble and so appreciative of Bishop Usher that uh, they made no hesitation to emphasize and declare that what they did they owed to his previous uh, research. So, uh, the Parliament calls for about 150 attendees and participants to meet and assemble at Westminster Abbey on July the 1st, 1643. July the 1st, 1643, Parliament said the Westminster Assembly is going to meet to confer, this is Parliament's words, to confer and treat among themselves of such matters and things touching and concerning the liturgy, discipline, government of the Church of England, or the vindicating and clearing of the doctrine of the same from all false aspersions and misconstructions. Now, you remember the Church of England was officially on paper in its confession of faith called the 39 Articles Reformed. During James I, most of his bishops and archbishops were reformed. 
And the 39 Articles, if you could find the 39 Articles of the Church of England, it's a great document. And one of the reasons the Episcopal Church in the United States is such a wretched apostate denomination is because when the Church of England came to this country, it left the 39 Articles in Great Britain. And so here the Parliament says, we want these 150 divines. Now the word divines, spelled with a small d, and it was an old word for theologians. The word divinity with a small d meant theology. They weren't saying that these Calvinists were gods. That they called 150 of these great preachers and scholars together to meet at Westminster Assembly to advise and to to reform the liturgy, the worship, the discipline, the government of the church, and to vindicate and clear the reformed doctrine of the Church of England from any false aspersions or misconstructions. Remember, by this time, Arminianism, through Archbishop Laud, had taken a strong hold on the hierarchy of the Church of England, and as a result of its stronghold, the Church of England defended tyranny. Wherever Arminianism takes root, it always joins hands with tyrants. And so now Parliament says that we've got to clear out the Arminianism, we've got to purify the doctrine, reform the liturgy, the worship, the government, and without that unity in these spiritual things, these doctrinal things, there cannot be unity anywhere else. How insightful these men were. Well, now let me just go back real quick, because I want you to get a feel of the seriousness of this whole era in which the Westminster Assembly now meets, 1643. Let me just remind you of a few things that happened in the 1641, 42, 43, etc. First of all, remember Charles I had been in a plot to bring Wentworth, the Earl of Stratford, and his half-Catholic, half-pagan Irish army, half-Roman Catholic, and bear in mind the Church of England, of which Charles I was the head, had separated from the Church of Rome. But now Charles I was depending upon the Earl of Stratford, Thomas Wentworth, to bring this Roman Catholic Irish army back into England to fight against English people to preserve and extend the tyranny of the crown. When that plot was discovered by people in Parliament, it was like a lightning flash upon the English people. It finally hit them. This king is willing to take any measure, however bloodthirsty, in order to preserve his tyranny. His word cannot be trusted. The only way that we can secure our own safety against this bloodthirsty king is to deprive him of any power to do us Englishmen harm. So... The plot was there in the background. Charles I needed tax money, just like every other tyrant. Tomorrow's the day. <laughs> Charles I was anxious that this Scottish army that's sitting here in England go back to Scotland, because it's a Presbyterian army. It's not an Anglican army. And he had to raise taxes to feed and bed these guys. But the Calvinists in Parliament did not want the army to leave. So whenever the King of England would come to Parliament and request tax money for his own army, Stratford, 
instead of the Scottish army, Parliament would refuse. And the conflict thickens. So then Parliament realizes the king is developing an army. There is still a strong number of people in England who are in defense of this tyrant. Because there's always people who would rather be slaves than free men. And Parliament realized we better go and make some overt negotiations with this Scottish army. We may need them in the future. Well, the king also realized that he had to neutralize the Scottish people some way or another. And maybe since he himself was Scotch, you remember, because James I of England was James VI of Scotland, his daddy. And so he decided that he himself needed to go to Scotland and try to seduce the Scottish people to defend the crown before Parliament got to him. I mean, that was so naive on his part. But he wasn't known for his brilliance in tactics. And so it became known to the Parliament of England that he was on his way to Scotland to pacify the Scots and to hopefully conclude a treaty with them that would bring the Scottish people on his side. They found out that he was trying to raise an army and money for an army out of Scotland and England for himself against the Parliament of England so that he could reduce his own English subjects to submission to his absolute rule. And then came what is known in history books as the incident. The incident. Before King Charles got to Scotland to try to make his negotiations with the Scots, there was a man named the Earl of Montrose who was found out in a conspiracy to betray the Covenanters. Now, who are the Covenanters? The Covenanters were the people that signed the National Covenant, saying we'd rather fight than switch. We'll defend the Reformed faith all our lives. That was the Covenanters. And there was a man, Earl of Montrose, who was found out to be in a conspiracy to betray these Covenanters and in some way to bring the Scottish people with the king. He was arrested. He was put in prison in the Edinburgh Castle. While he was in prison, he still corresponded with his fellow conspirators who were in constant contact with King Charles I. So now you have the king involved in a conspiracy to betray his own Scottish people, the Covenanters who signed the covenant, the National Covenant. And in that plot now, here's another bloody plot that Charles I is involved in. In that plot, of which Charles was fully aware, there was the plan to arrest two of the leading Reformed Scottish nobles of Argyle and Hamilton and put them to death. And in putting them death to death, strike terror in the heart of the Covenanters, intimidating them into putting an army into the hands of a king, the King of England, which army he could use to overrun the English Parliament. This plot involving Charles I, called the Incident, also impressed the English people. Their king cannot be trusted. He's capable of anything, however dark and bloody, if it advances his tyranny over men. So there was tremendous 
fear and anger growing in England. Something else happened right at the same time. You remember James the First had abused the Irish people in confiscating their lands for uh, English people and Scottish people. Charles the First, through Thomas Wentworth, uh, brutalized and tyrannized the Scottish people even more, driving thousands of them out of their property and into bankruptcy and into poverty. Well, these pagan and Roman Catholic Irish had taken all they could take, and so there was the great Irish massacre in which tens of thousands of English and Scottish Christians were brutally murdered. And they took out their vengeance not on the King of England, but they took out their vengeance upon English Puritans and Scottish Presbyterians that were living in Ireland. And the Irish massacre also filled England and Scotland with intense horror and alarm. Ireland was always considered to be the back door through which the Roman Catholics could come and retake England back to the Pope. So the king by this point is exasperated with Parliament. And so he impeaches five of the leading members of the House of Commons for high treason. And on April the 23rd, 1642, he leads a large cavalry into the English town of Hull. Here's the king now leading an army, a cavalry, into Hull to take possession of the ammunition supplies there. The mayor, so to speak, was pro-parliament, and so he refused to cooperate with the king. The king immediately had him arrested for, for uh, treason and declared him a traitor. And by this time, the breach between Parliament and the King was total. But you also had some cowards in Parliament. Because by this time, when everybody saw the Civil War has come, very, a large number of members of the House of Commons and the House of Lords forsook the Calvinist of Parliament and sided with the King. To meet all of this, the king's army taking over Hull, the ammunition supplies, many of the political power brokers leaving parliament, siding with the king, disruption complete between king and parliament, both the houses of parliament on July the 12th, 1642, determined that parliament need raise an army in defense of the king and parliament. They were never revolutionaries. They said, we need to raise money so when the king comes to his senses, we can defend him. But we also need an army to defend parliament from the army of the king. And so they chose a man named Earl of Essex to be the commanding officer of the parliamentary army. On August the 9th, 1642, the king of England declared the Earl of Essex and all of those in the army as traitors and declared both houses of parliament guilty of high treason. Forbidding any Englishman to submit to the laws of parliament. So what did parliament do? Parliament passed a law proclaiming that anybody who joined the king's army was a traitor to England and would be treated as such. So on August the 22nd, 
1642, King Charles got all of his faithful supporters, several thousand of them, formed an army at Nottingham and let out a, a, a national call, anybody that wants to come and fight for the king, come to Nottingham. Well, relatively few, although thousands came, rel thousands came, relatively few came compared to the population of England. And God did something. The king's royal banner was raised in Nottingham. Right after the king's banner was raised as the gathering point for all the English people, a massive storm of hurricane proportions blew over the king's standard. An ominous sign to many that the king's future is bleak indeed. So Scotland tried to find a, I mean, uh, the uh, English Parliament tried to seek aid from Scotland. So Scotland had tried to mediate. Now, this is a great story. Scotland had tried to mediate between the English king and Parliament because they saw this was going to be a bloody war. Parliament wanted Scotland to mediate, wanted these godly Presbyterians to try to work out some peace, but the king refused any Scottish mediation. And he ordered the Scottish people not to intermeddle with anything that's going on in England. The English Parliament at this time in 1643 knew that the General Assembly of the Presbyterian Church of Scotland was about to meet. So the Parliament of England sent an official communication to the General Assembly of the Church of Scotland informing the Church of Scotland about the serious state of affairs, expressing its desire that it as Parliament did not want to enter into civil war, sought to avoid it in any way that it possibly could, and simply wanted to work toward the biblical reform reconstruction of church and state. The General Assembly of the Church of Scotland responded to Parliament and expressed its sympathy for those facing danger in England and recommended that the only solution to the situation in England that would ward off civil war would be national unity in the Christian faith. Wisdom, isn't it? And they said, if there's going to be any national unity in the Christian faith, then, in the words of the Scottish Assembly, in all His Majesty's dominions there might be one confession of faith, one directory of worship, one public catechism, and one form of church government. He said, if there's going to be unity, you've got to have unity in a system of doctrine, unity in the principles of worship, unity in a catechism that you use in Christian education, unity in the government of the church, and without that full-orbed unity based upon the Word of God, there's no way to avoid civil war. They didn't avoid it. We didn't avoid it. For the very same reasons. Well, it wasn't just the Scottish people that wanted, that understood this. There was also this great desire in England in Parliament among most of the Puritans for a Presbyterian church government, a strong biblical discipline, a biblical worship, and a reformed confession of faith. So the Parliament of England communicated back to the assembly of the Church of Scotland saying what you want is what we want. We know what you want. You want a reformed religion, a Presbyterian church in England as the basis for the end of the economic, political, social chaos, and we agree with you. 
Now, that's important to bear in mind because a lot of people think that these old hard-nosed Scotch Presbyterians took advantage of these English Puritans who, was in, who were in a state of, uh, of distress and who needed the military firepower of Scotland. And so they uh, forced these Englishmen to accept a Presbyterian reformed government if we're going to help you. And because the Englishmen needed the help, they succumbed to the uh, pressure. Of the, that's not the way it happened. The English people wanted through Parliament. The English people wanted in England. The same thing Scotland wanted in Scotland and England. Well, the military conflict began in earnest. A lot of battles were fought between the King's army and the Parliament's army, and most of the time, Parliament got the worst end of the deal. In most of the battles between King and Parliament, Parliament lost. They tried to work out a peace treaty at Oxford. It failed. They found that the king was involved in all kinds of other traitorous plots, and he was continuously duplicious and deceitful. And the military conflict worsened, and the king's troops were continually and repeatedly successful. And therefore, Parliament realized that there had to be a close alliance with Scotland, or all was lost for the Protestant Reformation. So, in 1643, in the summer of 1643, the English Parliament made its official appeal to Scotland for assistance against the King. Scotland, for decades, had been a Presbyterian and Reformed nation, a covenanted nation. And you remember we've talked before about the difference of emphases between the English Puritans and Scottish Presbyterians. The English Puritans want, wanted civil liberty. They wanted liberty in the civil realm from the tyranny of the king over church and state. They wanted freedom of conscience from the king's rule. The Scottish people wanted religious liberty from the tyranny of the king. They were concerned about the freedom of the church, not the freedom of the conscience. They were concerned that for the crown rights of King Jesus. And so the Parliament and the Scottish people both recognized if there's going to be any kind of military alliance between the English Parliament and Scotland, then that alliance has to be both political and religious. It has to be on one side a political civil compact in which arms are promised to England to defend their civil liberty. But England knew that this alliance had not to be only a civil compact, but a religious covenant if they were going to get Scotland's aid. So Scotland agreed, we'll send our troops to, and our influence to help maintain civil liberty if you use your influence and your troops to maintain religious freedom for the church in Scotland and in England. And so out of that negotiation in 1643 came one of the foundation documents and models for the United States Constitution. Little research has been published in our day on this particular document, but it's one of the most important documents, more important than the Magna Carta, and even so, in many ways, more important than the U.S. Constitution, because the U.S. Constitution would never have existed without it. <clears throat> and that's a document called the Solemn League and Covenant. You see, they had both the words. 
It was a political league and a religious covenant. The solemn league and covenant in 1643 between England and Scotland. Now understand something about this covenant because we're going to read a lot of it this evening. You are what you are because of the solemn league and covenant. America is what it... Well, let's put it this way. America was great because of the solemn league and covenant. She is what she is today because she has forgotten the solemn league and covenant. There never would have been a U.S. Constitution and a Christian consensus in the 1700s if there hadn't have been a solemn league and covenant. But now bear in mind what the solemn league and covenant was. It wasn't a bunch of individuals and preachers from Scotland and England getting together and signing a piece of paper saying we want freedom for the church and we want a reformed and Presbyterian church in Scotland and England. You've got to bear in mind who signed this document. The Parliament of England, the Parliament of Scotland, and the General Assembly of the Church of Scotland. This was an official legal document between two nations. Not just a bunch of individuals and preachers getting together to sign something. This was a document signed by the Parliament of England, the Parliament of Scotland, and the General Assembly of the Church of Scotland. And by this solemn league and government, a covenant, it was solemn because they knew they may have to shed their own blood and uh, spill their own blood in defense of it. It was a league, a civil league defending civil liberty. And it was a covenant defending religious liberty for the church of the Lord Jesus Christ from the tyranny of the state. Now, I want to tell you something about Scotland at this point in time. Scotland's won the battles already. It's a separate country. It's won the battles. It kicked out the bishops. It's officially reformed. It has the Scottish Confession of Faith. It has the Scottish, uh, it has John Knox's form of church government and worship. Uh, it has a Presbyterian church. Revival is swept through. The Reformation is swept through most of Scotland. It is by and large a Christian people, though not a perfect people. They've won their liberties from tyranny. The King, King Charles tried to impose his liberty and he could not handle the Scottish army. And so the Scottish army is sitting now in the midst of England. They're free. What do they have to gain by going back into alliance with England and run the risk of losing the war and therefore coming back under the tyranny of the King of England and spilling their own blood? When Scotland agreed to help the English people, it was a great act of courage and compassion on the part of Scotland. They had nothing much to gain and everything to lose. That's how Christian this nation was. Let me read you some things. The Scots indeed had nothing to gain from the alliance which was offered them unless they gained security for their church from future King English interference. While on the other hand, by entering into it, they risked everything which they had at such great cost recovered for themselves. Their own liberties were already regained. The cause of Parliament in England, on the contrary, hung in the gravest doubt. It really was an act of high chivalry to call it by no more sacred name for them to cast their lot at this crisis with the Parliament. And more than one Scot must have cried to himself during the ensuing years, as one Scot did say, Surely it was a great act of faith in God and huge courage and unheard of compassion 
that moved our nation to hazard their own peace and venture their own lives for to save a people so irrecoverably ruined both in their own and all in the world's eyes. On the other hand, the Scots demanded nothing more than the Parliament should explicitly bind itself to the course it was on its own account loudly professing to be following the reconstruction of the English Church. All that was asked of Parliament was that it should give greater precision and binding force under the sanction of a solemn covenant to a repeatedly declared worship of the establishment of the Reformed faith in England. Scotland already was free. It was reformed. It risked everything out of compassion to help its brothers in England and to spill its own blood. And the only thing that Scotland demanded in order to come to England's assistance was that England be faithful to what it already expressed to the establishment of a thoroughly reformed and thoroughly Presbyterian church in England. That's all it asked. So the solemn League and Covenant was signed by which these two nations, England and Scotland, bound themselves together. It was sworn by the English Parliament, the Westminster Assembly, I forgot to mention them, the Scottish Parliament and the General Assembly of the Scottish Church. And then after these official representatives of church and state signed it, it was passed throughout the countries of England and Scotland to be subscribed by any individual in the whole population that wanted to sign it. And that event took place September the 25th, 1643. September the 25th. 1643. And here's what they promised to. The two covenanting nations, England and Scotland, bound themselves to the preservation. Now here's two words. Notice these two words in their words. Preservation and reformation. England and Scotland bound themselves to the preservation of the Reformed faith in the Church of Scotland and its doctrine, worship, discipline, and government against our common enemies. And on the other hand, they pledged themselves to the reformation of the church in the kingdom of England and Ireland in the areas of doctrine and worship and discipline and government according to the word of God and the example of the best reformed churches. You see its ecumenical flavor. To the end that thereby the churches of God in the three kingdoms might be brought to the nearest conjunction and uniformity in religion, confession of faith, form of church government, directory for worship and catechizing. So what England and Scotland bound themselves together in the solemn league and covenant to do was to preserve the Reformed faith in the Presbyterian Church in Scotland, and to reform the church in England among Calvinistic, along Calvinistic and Presbyterian lines using the models of some of the best Reformed churches of the world, like I'm sure they had in mind Geneva. And they were specific. They said this can't be some kind of nebulous general unity. It must be a genuine unity of doctrine, hence a common confession of faith, a genuine unity regarding worship and Christian education, hence a biblical directory of worship and catechisms to use to the instruction of the young, and true unity in the government of the church with Jesus Christ as the head, governed representatively by elders, hence a Presbyterian church. Next week we'll talk about the impact of this upon the Westminster Assembly, but what I want to do now very quickly is just read to you some of the best, better parts of the Solomon League and Covenant, government, because uh, this is where your roots are. 
Uh, let me just read some of the best parts. We noblemen, barons, knights, gentlemen, citizens, burgesses, ministers of the gospel, and commons of all sorts in the kingdoms of England, Scotland, and Ireland, by the providence of God living under one king, they weren't revolutionaries, and being of one reformed religion, having before our eyes the glory of God and the advancement of the kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. This is the Parliament of Scotland and England talking. And the advancement of the kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, the honor and happiness of the King's majesty and his posterity, and the true public liberty, safety, and peace of the kingdom, wherein everyone's private condition is included, and calling to mind the treacherous and bloody plots, conspiracies, attempts, and practices of the enemies of God against the true religion and professors thereof in all places, especially in these three kingdoms, Scotland, Ireland, and England, ever since the reformation of religion, and how much their rage, power, and presumption are of late, and at this time increased and exercised, whereof the deplorable estate of the church and the kingdom of Ireland, the distressed estate of the church and kingdom of Scotland, are present and public testimonies. We have now at last, after other means of supplication, remonstrance, protestations, and sufferings for the preservation of ourselves and our religion from utter ruin and destruction, according to the commendable practice of these kingdoms in former times and the example of God's people in other nations, after mature deliberation, resolved and determined to enter into a mutual and solemn league and covenant wherein we all subscribe, and each one of us for himself, with our hands lifted up to the Most High God, do swear that we shall sincerely, really, and constantly, through the grace of God, endeavor in our several places and callings the preservation of the Reformed religion in the Church of Scotland, in doctrine, worship, discipline, and government against our common enemies, the reformation of religion in the kingdoms of England and Ireland in doctrine, worship, discipline, and government according to the word of God and the example of the best reformed churches. And we shall endeavor to bring the churches of God in the three kingdoms to the nearest conjunction and uniformity of religion, confession of faith, form of church, government, directory for worship and catechizing, that we and our posterity after us may as brethren live in faith and love, and the Lord may delight to dwell in the midst of us that we shall in like manner without respect of persons endeavor the extirpation, the expunging, the destruction, the, the kicking out of the town, prelacy, that is church government by archbishops, bishops, their chancellors and commissaries, deans, deans and chapters, archdeacons and all other ecclesiastical officers depending on that hierarchy. Superstition, heresy, schism, profaneness, and whatever shall be found to be contrary to sound doctrine and power of godliness, lest we partake in other men's sins, and thereby be in danger to receive of their plagues, and that the Lord may be one and his name one in the three kingdoms. We shall also, with all faithfulness, endeavor the discovery of all such as have been or shall be incendiaries, malignants, or evil instruments by hindering. The Reformation of Religion. Anybody who hindered the Reformation of Religion was an enemy of Scotland, Ireland, and England. Still true. We shall also, according to our places and callings in this common cause of religion, liberty, and peace of the kingdom, assist and defend all those that enter into this League and Covenant in the maintaining and pursuing thereof, and shall not allow ourselves, directly or indirectly, by whatever combination, persuasion, or terror, 
to be divided or withdrawn from this blessed union. No matter how they terrorize us, we're not going to break the solemn league and covenant. Whether to make defection to the contrary part or give ourselves to a detestable indifferency or neutrality in this cause, to be neutral was to be treasonous in their minds. Which so much concerns the glory of God, the good of the kingdoms, the honor of the king, but shall all the days of our lives zealously and constantly continue in this commitment, all which we shall do in the sight of God. And because these kingdoms are guilty of many sins and provocations against God and His Son, Jesus Christ, as is too manifest by our present distresses and dangers, the fruits thereof, we profess and declare before God and the world our unfeigned desire to be humbled for our own sins and for the sins of these kingdoms, especially that we have not as we ought valued the inestimable benefit of the gospel, that we have not labored for the purity and power thereof, and that we have not endeavored to receive Christ in our hearts, nor to walk worthy of Him in our lives, which are the causes of other sins and transgressions so much abounding amongst us, and our true and unfeigned purpose, desire and endeavor for ourselves and all others under our power and charge, both in public and in private, in all duties we owe to God and man to amend our lives, and each one to go before another in the example of a real reformation, that the Lord may turn away his wrath and heavy indignation and establish these churches and kingdoms in truth and peace. And this covenant we make in the presence of Almighty God, the searcher of all hearts, with the true intention to perform the same, as we shall answer at that great day when the secrets of all hearts shall be disclosed, most humbly beseeching the Lord to strengthen us by his Holy Spirit for this end and to bless our desires and proceedings with such success as may be a deliverance and safety to his people and encouragement to the Christian churches groaning under or in danger of the yoke of anti-Christian tyranny, to join in the same or like association and covenant to the glory of God, the enlargement of the kingdom of Jesus Christ, and the peace and tranquility of Christian kingdoms and commonwealths. There's your roots. Wouldn't be in America without the solemn league and government. There may not be in America because we have betrayed our heritage. If you have the hardback copy of the Westminster Confession of Faith that we give out, the whole solemn league and covenant as well as the national covenant is in that book. We'll continue next week. And if we get through as far as I want to get through next week, after the service, we will see a movie, Cromwell. Whatever you do, try your best to stay. It's two hours. Richard Harris, Alec Guinness, all these big stars, and I've seen it dozens of times in my life, and it is one of the most edifying things you'll ever see. Cromwell, if we get through next week, which I fully intend to, we'll watch it after church. Let us pray. Father, we do thank you for these great men who were willing to spill their blood that we might be reformed. Help us to love that heritage and never to sell it out. For Christ's sake, amen. 
Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, believe it by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.